Well, we're talking with Tim Mack, the author of Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. And Tim is the investigative reporter for NPR. Uh, Tim, a fascinating book is just out. Um, I, I can't help but start with a question on Wayne LaPierre, uh, the the leader, I guess, or the uh, spokesman, uh, the right term. I, his title is executive vice president. Is that right? Yeah, he's Plus. both the executive vice president and the CEO. Steve. And CEO. Uh, but you paint a picture of him through the book or right into the book. You start to write it with him and you wonder. You, you hear about Wayne as kind of a weak leader, easily coerced, poor speaker, lavish lifestyle. I'm thinking, how does this guy stay in office? How, so how does he stay in office? How did he? Well, Steve, this book starts with this very dramatic scene. We're at Wayne LaPierre's wedding in the late 90s, and he doesn't want to get married, and he doesn't show up to the wedding. His best man agrees with him, says, you know, I don't think you should get married either and puts a $100 bill on the dashboard and says, you know, we could drive out of here right now. But Wayne ultimately gets talked into it, kind of bullied into it almost by the priest and his bride. And it results in this very awkward ceremony in which he's looking everywhere in the room except for into his bride's eyes. Now, there's a point to my telling that anecdote. And I think it explains a lot about why the NRA is in such deep financial and legal trouble right now that Wayne LaPierre over decades of leadership at the NRA has been someone who is just incredibly easily bullied into approving all sorts of lavish expenses and uh, you know, sweetheart deals for insiders, golden parachutes for executives and, and senior leadership in the company, millions of dollars for contractors who have an in with Wayne LaPierre because people realize that if you yell at Wayne LaPierre enough, he's eventually gonna say yes to you. And wow. he, he can be easily pushed around. So you ask, you know, why is it that this guy who is the head of, you know, the most powerful, arguably the most powerful uh, political advocacy organization in America, how does he maintain his position there? And one of the answers I think is that because in his malleability, he's made himself indispensable to the powerful people inside the NRA's orbit, whether it's executives, whether it's people who got these golden parachutes, whether it's top contractors or lawyers who are making millions and millions of dollars after the NRA, he's made himself indispensable. Despite all these allegations of misconduct and misspending that have bubbled up to the surface through investigative reporting in work like Misfire. Well, we're talking with Tim Mack, the author of Misfire, a book about the, the NRA. It's very... Uh, in, it's it's an intriguing story and, and obviously uh, meticulously uh, researched, uh, Tim, because you've got interviews with all kinds of folks. And I think what people and I think a lot of people know this, but but it's worth restating uh, the money that the NRA uh, produces or, or gathers is is mind boggling because you, you have all these stories of private jets and going to the Caribbean and, and, you know, all the fancy celebrity hairdressers. I mean, that's all financed by the, mostly by the NRA members, right? That's right. And, you know, the NRA is a nonprofit, right? So it has a higher standard for transparency and accountability of the public because it doesn't pay taxes on, on incoming revenue, but the NRA and its top leaders found various ways to hide its misspending and misconduct from the public. One of the 
stories that I meticulously detail in Misfire is the way in which top NRA officials would hide their spending by using their outside ad agency. So they, they love to go to this very pricey uh, Italian restaurant in Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of DC. And what they would do is they would put the, the dinner in the thousands of dollars on their ad agency's credit card bill. And the ad agency would then bill the NRA back for expenses. They're just servicing their client, right? As far as anyone can tell as an ad agency. Mm-hmm. And no one knows. And so they were able to hide for so long things like celebrity hairdressers, like you mentioned, things like uh, private jets, uh, things like uh, trips to Europe, things like you know an apartment for, uh, for an intern that had an in with, uh, with Wayne LaPierre's family. And this, and your book makes repeatedly shares. Yeah, and and sort of along with that, the your book makes another point, and that's okay. The the executives and the higher ups and the hangers on are, are getting these these benefits. That didn't um, down down below the the working guys uh, and women at the NRA. They were underpaid, uh, as I recall from from the yeah. book. Yeah, well, yeah. Steve, you know, if any of your listeners have ever worked for a nonprofit, uh, they know that oftentimes you're asked to take it to make a personal sacrifice to work at a nonprofit, right? That nonprofits are have to be very frugal, and so there are two levels at the NRA. There's the senior leaders and executives who are just getting ridiculous benefits, salaries, meals, travel, and then your rank and file staff who are, you know, if they travel at all, they have to stay at the Holiday Inn. They've got a, they, they're not allowed to take cabs and expense it. I mean, uh, and they're paid just, the, they're paid just these rock bottom incomes. And they think, you know, to themselves, oh, well, it's worth it to work for a nonprofit whose goals I believe in. But ultimately, they're not aware until more, more recently about how lavish the spending is at the very top. You know, this, this book, is a result of more than 120 interviews with people inside NRA circles and thousands of pages of secret court depositions, as well as internal emails and private documents from inside the NRA. And that none of that would have been possible if folks inside the NRA didn't have a great deal of alarm about the misconduct inside the organization. I think there's a lot of feeling among rank and file NRA members that with all this lavish spending, NRA executives have really betrayed your average NRA member, some of whom are blue collar folks contributing five, 10, 15 bucks a month to what they think is uh, something that will advance the cause they believe in. But instead it's going towards these millions and millions of dollars in lavish spending that we've been talking about today. We're talking with Tim Mack, uh, NPR investigative reporter who has written the book Misfire about the NRA. And Tim, one of the things you mentioned uh, or cited in the book is after the the tragedy at Sandy Hook, where the, where the school children were gunned down, the NRA kind of turned away in all the resulting furor over that, from being a, a like a gun rights organization where m- most of its focus was to a culture war. And then I think you say by 2016, the election there, the NRA was a conservative culture war organization. It kind of had changed in in over the in, in recent years. Yeah, for a really long time, the NRA's most valuable strategic asset was 
being able to reach out to some Democrats and having Democratic supporters, moderates who, uh, you know, for whatever their other opinions were, were supportive of Second Amendment rights. But after Sandy Hook, the NRA decides to double down on only reaching out to folks that are conservatives and Republicans. And, you know, that, that leads to a very interesting evolution, which is that the NRA is very successful during the Obama years in fundraising and in raising its membership. Uh, and, and it's extremely successful in politics. It, it spends more than $30 million on Trump's first election bid in 2016, more even than Trump's own super PAC in doing so. And ironically, Trump's election marks the beginning of the downfall of the NRA because during the Trump administration, the NRA is much less successful in selling kind of fear of a challenge to Second Amendment rights because the Republicans in office. And all these sorts of uh, reports and allegations of misconduct begin to bubble up to the surface as the organization gets this financial squeeze. And of course, the uh, the added uh, element uh, to to uh, you could say the downfall of the uh, the the sort of <laughs> uh, readjustment and thinking about the NRA is is the Russian connection. Um, you detail that uh, very closely um, with the, with the two individuals that kind of. And and perhaps we need to make this clear that they, they, the, the the phrase back channel communications is used. Can you explain that a little bit, Tim? What what were these? What were the Russian uh, agents, operatives trying to do with the NRA? What was really interesting about this book is that I started writing Misfire, wondering, you know, what is it? Uh, what if anything did the Russians give the NRA? How did the Russians, if they did it all, support the NRA? And what I realized that instead is it's the opposite direction that the NRA was giving to the Russians and allowed itself to be totally played by a Russian agent named Maria Butina. Now, Maria Butina uh, is ultimately someone who is a Russian citizen who supports Second Amendment rights and shows up in Washington, D.C. She infiltrates the National Rifle Association, begins to network with all sorts of senior officials, despite no general background in um, uh, in, in the United States and is able to use the NRA's money to network and travel, go to various events, go to various conferences. Uh, the NRA ends up benefiting her greatly. And when we talk about backshelling, what we mean is that the Russian government is very interested in who's important in American politics and developing connections with all sorts of important people. There's no doubt that NRA officials fall in that category. And so when Maria Butina was ultimately charged with being an unregistered Russian agent, one of the things was that she was trying to use these connections for the Russian government's interests and to further the Russian government's hopes and ends. She, Maria Butina, was ultimately convicted of that charge, of one of those charges, and she spent time in prison before ultimately being deported. The whole story kind of shows you how malleable, disorganized, and ineffective internally the NRA has been over the last few years. I, I, I love the quote that you, uh, you have for Chris Cox, who is, I guess, the NRA's chief lobbyist, I think, or at least yeah. main guy. But the quote you use in regards to Maria Bettina uh, is quasi-attractive. Cox, I guess, suspected Bettina of being more than what she was. Quasi-attractive 20-something-year-old Russian women don't hang around older American guys for no reason. 
<laughs> I thought that was that. Unfortunately, the others didn't didn't come to that conclusion, but he he did, and uh, you know thought something was was awry there with with her involvement. But uh, but she she was found guilty and and um, now is deported. What you know? And meanwhile, of course, we have all the allegations about. Russia and and their involvement with the election in 2016. I mean, we've all heard much uh, much about that. It seems to almost mirror that uh, that whole involvement where we had Russians involved uh, trying to get more information. That's right. I mean, what what I love about Misfire is that it's all about the scenes. It takes you behind the curtain inside this organization and shows you who the people are there what they're like, what the personalities are like, and what they said in the rooms they said it and who they said it to. And so many of the scenes in the book include Marie Boutina hobnobbing with senior NRA officials, bringing them on a trip to Moscow, and ultimately using the NRA and manipulating the NRA in such a way that you wonder why the NRA is so disorganized and so chaotic internally that it allowed itself to be played so easily. You know, the, um, your book, uh, Misfire, we're talking with Tim Mack, uh, NPR investigative reporter. Uh, th- there's a review out there. I just was reading it online. Uh, Gabino Inglesius uh, has written the review, and he concludes, I'll, I'll let you comment on this, Tim. Uh, despite all that, and he's talked about your book, the NRA is still around and still powerful, which makes Misfire the equivalent of reading the autopsy of a zombie, one that reminds us the monster is falling apart, but still here and still dangerous. Uh, the NRA is still still with us, right? The NRA is facing some of its most serious challenges to its very ex- existence, but it's still around. Yeah. Um, and it still has millions and millions of very passionate members. And, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that these millions of members will continue to exist and their, their views will continue to exist regardless of what the NRA, what happens to the NRA as an organization. So the NRA as an organization and its collapse over the last few years uh, does not mean the end to the conversation about the, pol- about the politics of firearms and guns in this country. Uh, there's still a, a lot undecided on that issue. And the NRA may very well survive its current, um, its current downfall and its cur- current controversies. Tim, we thank you so much for your time and good luck as you uh, continue to work on on stories uh, that we will listen for uh, on the radio. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Steve. Take care.